Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and on today's show we find out why we all love to buy stuff from JB Hi-Fi with its CEO Richard Murray. Richard explains to us a lot about the culture of JB Hi-Fi and I think that's really important when you look at the share price. The share price is done brilliantly under Murray and uh, the culture of that company largely explains it. Then we meet Steve Primitico, who's the founder of Me and You, the app that makes it really easy to buy a beer or a burger just sitting at a table in a pub or a cafe. This company has been uh, targeted by uh, another big successful listed company, and we'll talk about that when we catch up with Steve. So without any further ado, let's catch up with Richard Murray. Richard, thanks for joining us. Peter, thanks for having us again. All right, mate. Well, I want to do this in two parts. Um, I just want to get to the core of, you know, what you've learnt business-wise during 2020. Well, I, I think as most business people say, their risk register never had <laughs> a global pandemic on it. So yeah. I'm, I'm happy to put my hand up there and say uh, we didn't have that one on the risk register. But then also... Pop, it does remind me that when federal governments stimulate the economy, it is generally good for retail and it hasn't been and it has been good for JB. So I think we we should start out by acknowledging and you and I are talking about some restaurants in Melbourne earlier, you know, the hospitality sector, um, the travel sector is doing it particularly tough and, and we certainly feel for them. I guess the reality for me is that I'm here to make sure that JB um, looks after its customers and, and staff and, look, and delivers to its shareholders mm. and Certainly, we have had a period of uh, elevated sales across what I'd say are three sort of key periods. The, you know, there was the fridges and freezers to start with when anyone was thinking about how are they going to store food at home. Mm. Then people were learning and working from home, so all the IT accessories, computers. And then as we had a sustained period in our homes, people started upgrading their TVs, et cetera. Mm. And it seems to me that you... Uh, you can well remember this, and I remember you know, talking to you about it at the time that there was two or three years ago, Amazon was going to come and eat your lunch, and the online world was going to be a challenge to you and Harvey Norman and all that sort of stuff. But has your online offering proved, you know, um, to be of a, of a a very good caliber? We have made a sustained investment on online, and and as you know, we're not one to sort of get too lost in. Uh, in, in cliches, but it, it, we have just done what we normally do, which is we've picked a few things we want to do well, and we've just chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. Mm -hmm. And with online, we launched, a, so we're using a company out of Canada called Shopify. They're a global sort of e-commerce platform. And so they, I, I say they're like our builders. They built the platform and we sit our store on top of it. And that has enabled us to achieve in two years what I worried might take us five years if we built it from scratch. Mm. And so I actually don't want to think about the scenario we went through this pandemic with the old website because I think it would have broke, it would have broken. Mm. And so our partnership with Shopify has been really important. The internal marketing IT teams have worked their tushes off. And but but I think where people get a bit lost with online sometimes is just not thinking just about the website because that's obviously for customers come in store 80% of those customers start their journey online anyway so it's important we have a good website for our bricks and mortar customers but on top of that it's in what I think we've done really well is the delivery choices so you know we when we got went into lockdown in March in Melbourne we currently have 75 SUVs on the road driven by our staff 
doing basic, we call it store to door at JB and express at the good guys. And we are our own staff where our stores have been dark, not open to customers are delivering. So if you order by two o'clock, you will get it that afternoon. Mm. And at one stage we were doing it for $5 when we were really keen to test ourselves. Mm. Um, that's probably a bit too good to be true in the, in the real world, but mm. after a pandemic, you're happy to test and learn. So I have never received feedback as I have recently from friends on, on JB store to door and good guys express. Yeah. It's, that's been awesome. Well, I guess, um, I'm kind of laughing to myself because whenever I go into a JB Hi-Fi store, you know, your staff looks really cool and groovy, you know, tattoos, earrings, all that sort of stuff. And they're, and, and they're always dressed in a cool and groovy way and they could become delivery people as well. Well, you know, what I noticed with the staff is, so the one thing I, you know, we talk so much, and you, you and I talk about it a lot, but, you know, we, how do we talk about valuing our people if we stand them down during mm. the pandemic? Um, so we want, I, we wanted to do anything to keep the team employed. Mm. And if that meant they're delivery drivers for a period while we get through this crazy time and we're using external contractors a bit less, um, we actually thought the external contractors would break. I think Toll and Australia Post, all things considered, have actually done a pretty jolly good job. But that said, there's no, you cannot replace a staff member arriving at your home. People love our JB Hi-Fi staff member turning up. Mm. We've got amazing feedback. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've created new customers over this period. People, and I know people who've, I think, in fact, um, Bernard Salt said he'd never bought anything online until he was forced to do it, being a locked-up Melbourne guy. Um, so you, obviously you've created new customers. How, how well do you think you'll keep those customers? How easy will it be to keep those customers? I think that's one thing that traditionally bricks and mortar does pretty well relative to online. I think people are not that loyal sometimes online but I think the power of bricks and mortar and online. So what we know with online, people have a lot of concerns about returns and all that stuff that happens outside the purchase. So normally when, when you buy something, you get it, it turns up. What, what I think JB prides itself and the good guys on is when something breaks or you have an issue with there, we've got your back as a customer. And so what sometimes with online purchases, people don't feel as confident that it's gonna get sorted. So the power of, I've bought it online, but I can take it back to store. Um, has been we actually spun up returns online during the pan during COVID, which we're really pleased with. So I think it's the power of both. There's no doubt we've got new customers, but I think being able to shop with us anywhere, and in fact nowadays you can call us and we'll send you a you say I don't really know what TV I want. I'm interested in this. I'm interested in that. Our salesperson will help you over the phone and then send you a link, and you can do click and collect. Or home delivery. So we've even we're even back to serving people over the phone. Mm. All right. So let's understand you've increased your customer base, but also your rivals have probably grown the stature. Like you know, Kogan's obviously done well over this period, and I don't know whether they have or not. But you would presume Amazon's even done well. Is there a strategy to make sure that over time you you beat them up? I know you you wouldn't actually admit to it but end of the day they're rivals is there a strategy to, to make sure you come out on top on the online world we've tended to hold ourselves to a very high standard internally so I, I, while there was no doubt when we had our friends turning up from the u.s we did a lot of work and we went and visited retailers in the u.s we visited our our peer group companies in london and paris you know we we we, we learned everything we could about our competitor turning up in australia and we had our, we were absolutely ready for that competition. 
at the same time, I think your point, real staff talking to real customers, whether they want to shop online or in store is really powerful. And I think a lot of people shop online with JB and they know that behind the behind that online is a real person and they value that connection with our staff and it's very authentic. Um, and we continue to think the power of both will stand us in good stead against online competition, which is a bit not always, um, it's a bit one directional, right? There's nobody there. There's just the website. Okay. Because you're a chartered accountant, and gee, you don't look like one, you look like a normal person at this point in time, Richard, well done you. Um, you know, when your share price was around the 30s, uh, 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 the, inexplicably the market went against you and you dropped down to the low 20s and now you're ripped into the 40s. I, I must admit, I haven't checked you lately. Where, where are you nowadays? I think we're about $48. Yes, yeah, so I thought around, around 50 So my question is, and I know this is not your job to, to explain what the share price might do, but you've done it before, you defied your critics, and you've grown the business. What's going to be the big strategy going forward so we eventually see, well, let me pick a price, not you, $60. How, how do you, what, what's going to be JB Hi-Fi's innovative strategy going forward? So, I mean, you and I could get lost in price to earnings ratios. Don't I guess do that. Just focus on how do I grow the profitability of the business over yep. the medium term and we'll, we assume the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. I think about that, it is one, we absolutely have to do everything in the eye of the customer. Yep. Um, and, and so we can't, and, but that can't be a blank check. So we do have, it, while we want to delight customers every day, we need to do that in a financially sensible way. So we work hard with suppliers to make sure that we've got great promotions. We spend uh, a lot less on advertising than most of our competitors, which means we can make sure our prices stay low. But fundamentally, and one of the things I'm really proud of is we actually have a pretty um, re relatively generous internal reward program for the staff. And I think that means we retain the, the A team for our customers because they want to be served by knowledgeable people. And so if we keep, we're very focused, you know, keep, look after your staff, they'll look after your customers and that, that'll look after your shareholders. Mm. What, you know, your culture is um, one of your strongest assets. Was it there when you turned up or do you, do you pat yourself on the back for what you've created in culture-wise? Oh, that's a hard question, but uh, I, I certainly it's not. I, I think I could be responsible for breaking it if I wasn't careful. Mm. So I, I often say to the team, it's going to be really hard to put it back together if we break it. Mm. So sometimes you actually don't know exactly what we do well. We do, it's empowered. It's authentic. Anybody can walk into my office. There's people in the organisation that really don't know what a CEO does, and I'm really cool with that. As mm. long as they look after the customers, then they've got a really happy CEO, even if they don't really know what that person does. So we're pretty flat, we're pretty authentic. I think when it comes to culture, it's very hard to build, and sometimes you don't always know the component ingredients that got you there, but it's really clear what you could do to damage it. And it's about, you know, we're, we're very... Um, careful when we give feedback with our team, often that's actually our fault. You know, if a, if 200 stores can't get it right, it's pretty clear support office didn't get it right, dishing it down to the stores. So our job as a support office, as an executive team, is to make sure when the stores and, um, and the team are going to market and serving customers, 
that we make that as simple and efficient and effective and as authentic as possible. Mm. Do you do you have a um, a channel through which you get feedback from your staff? Because let's face it, you know they often have a different view of the world. Oh well, one I get into stores, which is always the best feedback because mm. you know, you're there having a conversation. Um, I get emails, I get texts. Um, we have a Yammer, which is sort of an internal social media channel. Um, and I know that the support office team considers it mission critical getting out to stores because often the brainwave we have at support office can be a good idea in conceptually, but you need the store team's input. Um, I remember one day, this is a simple example. We sent out a form, we printed 8,000 forms and there was a typo, which is not a great outcome. Mm. And we called the store and I remember sitting on the call and we said, oh, Jill at the store, we've, we've made this mistake. How do you think we'll fix it? She goes, I'll just cross it out and send it back when I reprocess the form. So sometimes you can get lost mm. or you just cross out the wrong word. What's the future of retail? Obviously, things are, are changing as, as a consequence of the coronavirus. It's probably sped up a lot of changes. What's going to happen to retail Um shopping centres and stuff like that. What do you think is going to happen, Richard? Well, what you I certainly think that, I mean, we've got a lot of partners that are shopping centres that are very important to us. So they want to be sort of careful how I say this. Yeah. The harsh reality is some of the rents in shopping centres are, are hard for retailers to sustain and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'll leave others to judge it, but I certainly think for a lot of smaller retailers, those rents are not particularly sustainable. Uh, the, for, for us, I think as a, a mini major, we obviously uh, attract a lot of traffic to a shopping centre, so we get a reasonably competitive rent. But I don't think most retailers at the moment think they'll have more stores in the future. Now, the argument for us is, do you have less bigger stores? Do you have less smaller stores? Or do you say, you know, I can get more infill stores? But the reality is I'm absolutely convinced JB and the good guys across Australia will have circa 300 stores mm. because they enable so many things. They Not just customers. You know, how have we delighted customers during a pandemic? Because we have 200, 300 warehouses across the country that we can deliver from and, you know, are within about 11 kilometres of most customers. Whereas if we had one warehouse in Melbourne and one warehouse in Sydney, it's just harder. I'm not mm. saying it's wrong, it's just harder. So, so how many stores do you have across those two businesses? So JB has a couple of hundred and Good Guys has about a hundred. So you're not planning on opening any new ones. You're just going to try and increase the, the I guess, the, the footprint reach of each store? Well, no, what I'm, I'm saying, so I actually see a point where we will have, so we for a JB store, it's about 1,300 square metres. Today, we think that's about right. I know for the good guys, we're sometimes thinking, could we take a little bit more space? So originally when we bought the good guys, we were probably planning to roll out more stores. We haven't done a lot of new stores, but we think some of the, their stores are a bit smaller and we would over time relocate them within the same area, but we might try and find a bigger site mm. where we can, sh you know, customers come to both brands wanting the full range of products and we it's critical that we display that. All right, last question, Richard. Um, You've been running Good Guy, uh, uh, JB Hi-Fi for how long now? Six years. Six years. What have you learned about leading people? Because, you know, let's face it, as an accountant, I, I don't want to bag accountants. I love accountants. You know, being an economist, you know, we're like entertaining accountants. But, you know, you, I say it with, with all the deepest respect, 
But leadership isn't a natural thing that you learn at university when you become an accountant. What have you learned about leading people, particularly in retail? Well, the good, the one thing you know, so I was previous at Deloitte, um, you know, and it's obviously there, there's a fairly defined career path. Mm. In retail, there's a lot of real people with a lot of different objectives. It's a very broad church and you need to love that. Um, you need to love that sometimes people don't actually know you're the CEO and they actually probably don't really care and you need to be okay with it because you, you're <laughs> looking for people to make you feel good. They're just trying to serve customers over there and if you could do something to help them, that'd be really helpful. So when I think about... What the biggest thing I've learned is you absolutely cannot do it yourself. You just need to empower people. And so if you don't, if you don't build trust and authenticity, so basically what I, so a good example would be during COVID, you know, we went out and said, guys, we need queuing systems. I reckon most other retailers were putting in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of orders for queuing systems. What did our guys do? They went out the back, they got plasma TV boxes, they wrapped them in yellow plastic and set up queuing systems. Mm -hmm. Problem solved. Mm. you can't teach people that you you just you have a culture that empowers people to take pride in their store and get the job done and and i would say when i arrived at, at jb as a, a 26 year old cfo i absolutely didn't appreciate the value of that and um you know richard you and terry absolutely did mm. and if there's something i now sit here at 44 understanding it is crystal clear is it's really not about me. My job is just to enable people, the team to be successful. Um, and if I can get roadblocks out of the way and find the right people, um, that's that's the most important thing because I cannot be everywhere as, um, I, you know, sometimes you love to be. But, you know, the reality is so if I touch very little in reality, but what I do is I need to make sure the team feels comfortable that we're going to back them. And if we make, I'd much prefer to be having a go and make a few mistakes, then never have tried. Richard Murray, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated, and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yeah. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought?
My next guest is Stephen Primitico, the founder and CEO of Me and You. Now, in 2007, Stephen conceptualized Dimmy Online Restaurant Reservations, now called The Fork, and in 2015, it was acquired by TripAdvisor. Stephen then turned his attention to his next startup, Me and You, which is set to change the way we order and pay in cafes, bars, and restaurants across the country. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Peter. Thank you. So after exiting the Dimmy business, what enticed you back into this startup world? Apart from money, of course. <laughs> it definitely nothing to do with money, Peter. I am um, my very last ever interview, I said I would never, ever, ever do this startup thing again. <laughs> and that you know, that was how I felt at that time. You know, you're destroyed, you're exhausted. The startup ride's a tough ride. Yeah. Um, I then went on and did the Camino Santiago, which you would know, the the thousand kilometer walk from France to Spain. Yeah. Um, and it was about halfway through that walk that I started to get the energy and the enthusiasm um, back to try and solve problems. And, um, you know, me and you was born on that walk. Um, and, you know, that um, I just, I wanted to come back and do something good in hospitality. Mm. Um, so mm. me and you was born then. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a crazy ride since. So tell us about me and you. Yeah, it's pretty magical, Peter. So um, it's, you know, we're in the hospitality space, um, you know, customers rock up at a cafe, restaurant or bar, they simply tap their phone uh, in the middle of the table, and they get a beautiful visual menu. Mm. And from that point forward, they can browse the menu, they can order, and they can pay directly from the convenience of their own phone. So I think the big problems we're trying to solve is, you know, Customers hate this hand in the air, trying to get attention. Mm. They hate splitting the bill. And in particular, they hate getting up to go to the counter to order a beer. Mm. So we want to eliminate the friction and simply allow customers to have more magical times at the table with their friends and family. Mm. What does it mean for the supplier of the product? Like, does it mean that they need more bar staff to, to actually carry the stuff to the tables? Yeah, that's a that's that's been a fascinating sort of uh, evolution that we've seen over the past few years, Peter. So I think, you know, this this is absolutely not about reducing staff, but what we absolutely are seeing this is a redefining of the roles in hospitality. Mm. So there's less people uh, order taking, so less waiters and less people behind bar taking orders, but we're seeing more people front of house. Um, and more people delivering stuff to tables. Mm. So I think the simple view is, you know, technology on its own is never going to succeed. Mm. You've got to have great tech plus great humanity to kind of really create the magical experiences in hospitality. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing less order takers and more sort of magic makers, front of house, on the floor, connecting with customers. What's the big appeal for the, the owner of a hospitality business? Yeah, so I think there's probably three big ones. And the first one is a big one that we only realized over the past year. The Definitely the biggest bit here is that when a customer orders with me and you, as opposed to ordering at the counter or via waiter, the average spend is 27.5% higher. Mm. So in a time of COVID when everyone's on its knees, the fact that customers are ordering more, spending more, um, that's that's a critical bit. So I think that's the first bit. 
The second bit is we're definitely seeing through the ratings that customers are walking out happier. So I haven't stood, I haven't wasted 10 minutes in a queue to order a beer. I haven't tried to, you know, get attention. Mm. I haven't spent five minutes splitting the bill. So I'm walking out happier because I've spent more time doing the stuff that I wanted to do, which was hang out with family and friends. So I think definitely customers are walking out happier. And I think the third bit um, that we're definitely seeing is ultimately that's creating an industry that's more profitable and arguably in the time of COVID, a more sustainable industry, uh, which I think is clearly important given the the climate we're in now. Mm. Is there a is there a, um, an easy to calculate cost saving, or it's more the, the generation of more revenue that's the big appeal factor for, say, someone who owns a pub or a cafe? Yeah, I think everyone goes into it thinking, you know, we're going to save money. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at, at me and you, we don't believe that that's the key driver here. Like, I, I think that, you know, yes, you know, you can save some costs, but the absolute catalyst here and the big thing that we've, we've been able to unlock is if we make it easier for customers to order, they spend more. And that's because, Peter, when I'm ordering my steak, I'm going to add a bucket of fries. Mm. Uh, or when I'm getting my, my first beer, now I just push a button and my second beer gets delivered to the table. So what we've found is that by removing the friction, it's so much easier and customers are, uh, are doing more of it. Yeah, it sounds as though the system's been designed by Homer Simpson, the idea of <laughs> I'm drinking a beer and there's another one coming not too far behind. All right, so did you have to start from scratch to design this or were there other sort of struggling startups out there who had sort of po- worked on it but just really hadn't been able to, to either make it perfect or sell it to a to a, a number of hospitality outlets? Yeah, wow. Um, Peter, so w- when I started Dimmy, that was easy because with Dimmy, there was a couple of international players who were already a few years ahead. So we could look to those guys for inspiration and see what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. When when I started me new sort of three years years ago, there was nobody across the planet who was doing this. So I think, you know, and I'm very proud of the team because we're true innovators in that in that space. The the beauty with that is what you're doing is cutting edge and innovative. The challenge with that is, you know, you're learning you're stuffing up and you're failing on your on your own, and you don't really have counterparts across the planet to um, to look to for inspiration um, uh, at all. That's changed over the past you know year um, as the market's become a whole lot more active. Uh, so the market's more you know more active now. But when we you know when we first started, you know, me and you was definitely the first uh, the first out of the gates. Okay, um, how many outlets have you got on board at this point in time? Yeah, so there's about 500 across Australia, mm. um, and you know we'll process we'll process over a million orders a month by the end of this year, Peter. Mm. So you know the growth that we're seeing on the platform has been astronomical. Um, COVID clearly was a massive dent for the entire industry and including this business. Mm. Um, but on the outside of COVID, we're definitely seeing that the industry is back. And as the industry is back, we're seeing massive growth across the platform. Is the ordering via the app providing the hospitality um, venue owner with a whole lot of data that helps him or her work out the best way to maximise, you know, the the sales for the the business? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, we, we, we truly believe that data is one of the key, the key foundation for a successful hospitality business. And mm. I think if you think about, you know, the delivery guys, the big delivery guys, unfortunately, they, they, they for many years have never shared that data with operators. So I think from day one at me and you, we've always believed in, you know, we've got to share the data with the operators so they can run a more successful business. So, so that means, um, you know, if customers opt in, they get marketing data that they can um, talk to the customers, number one. But number two is the the venues are starting to build a profile on you, Peter. So that means that you know that that menu that you're seeing when you go from venue to venue is ultimately going to become more personalised for you. Mm-hmm. So if you're a gin drinker, you will see more 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 gins and less red wine. If you're a uh, if you're a vegan, you know you'll see a vegan inspired menu rather than a you know. Uh, a meat savvy uh, menu. So, you know, the menu, we're using data to really enrich the experience and help uh, operators get customers back into their venues. Is it true that you turned down a job offer from Richard Branson? But I don't know if it was this, the stupidest or the best decision I ever made, um, mm. but I just, I was a regional director of marketing for Hilton Hotels in the UK. Mm. Um I quit my job because I had this startup ambition in my heart. And a, a year into me starting to get, you know, my uh, my startup, which was Dimmy at the time off the ground, I got approached to launch Virgin in Australia. Mm-hmm. Now that was a dream job for me. Um, you know, and uh, Branson's always been a bit of a mentor. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, at that time it was insane because I had, you know, I, you know, it was a GFC had just hit um, the world. You know, my startup was nothing, um, but somehow I got the strength to say no to that mm. and say yes to the startup that became Dimmy. And, mm. you know, at the time it was naive, it was crazy, it was insane. But I think in hindsight, Peter, I'd, I'd say that it was without question one of the best decisions I ever made. Okay. And have, have any sort of big end of town uh, companies shown interest in the the business um yeah so you know we're we're backed by a couple of um you know the top sort of um brands in this country so justin hems of merivale is one of our um, main investors Mm. i'm very proud of that because he's uh you know he's definitely a thought leader in this industry yeah you know when i first had the idea justin was one of the very first people that i caught up with you know and he said you know that's that's a problem I want to solve. I want to eliminate the bill in across all of my venues. So he came on board as an investor, um, as did Tyro, um, the banking platform, and mm. they've given us the capital to uh, to grow at, a, at an aggressive rate across Australia and really drive out innovation uh, to help the industry survive and thrive through um, through COVID. Mm. So taking, let's go down the track and let's imagine by March, you know, yeah, and the West Australian election's over, so the border is open probably two weeks after, so it doesn't look like Premier McGowan has been a, a political opportunist or anything like that, but he's absolutely sure that there's no threat to the to people in WA. When that happens, do you think that will create a much better, bigger, longer runway for the growth of me and you? Yeah, without question. So the, the restrictions that are imposed on hospitality venues right now, it's choking them. Mm. So, 
you know, so most businesses are 50% down on what they would normally be across Sydney, Queensland and, uh, and Perth. So once the restrictions are relaxed, once interstate travel or travel um, is permitted again, we see hospitality um, coming back to near normal levels um, and we would expect the business to flourish even further on the other side of that. We've seen it, you know, with Melbourne, you know, only two days ago with the restrictions being released, you know, um, you know, people have come out of the gate storming. People are desperate for a beer and they just want to get back into hospitality. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we definitely see that, you know, as the restrictions relax, as travel comes back again, you know, people love hospitality, Peter. You know, we just want to get it back out, have a beer, have a burger, hang out with friends and, you know, get back into cafes and pubs and um, back to good times. Isn't it funny that we, in a sense, most Australians will sell their grandmother into captivity to buy their own home, but as soon as they get their own home, they want to go out <laughs> and leave their home behind. But it is always nice to come back to something that you own. Stephen, it's great to talk to you, mate. It's great to see that you've you know, gone from Dimmy to, a, to another great business, and uh, we always love uh, Australian entrepreneurs having a crack, and that's fantastic. Well done. Thank you, Peter. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. The next week, we have the man that gave us I Give a Gonski. Yes, David Gonski is on the program, and we'll be talking about what he learned about investing and being at the big end of town as chairs of some of the most famous publicly listed companies in the country. That's David Gonski. That's next week. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Time. Time. <laughs>